Welcome back to the CP for Three podcast. There'll be no NBA news today, as instead we are joined by 13-time Emmy Award-winning broadcaster and writer Jimmy Roberts. He's covered the Masters, the Olympics, the World Series, the NBA Finals, heavyweight boxing, Super Bowls, and more. Jimmy is also the author of the book Breaking the Slump, which is about some of the greatest golfers of all time broke out of their career-threatening slumps. Jimmy is currently in the halftime show for Notre Dame football. Jimmy, how are you today? Christian, I'm good. Jack, good to be with you guys. So, you are one of the most successful broadcasters in today right now. When did you know you wanted to become a sportscaster? You know, it's funny. I think um, the way I started off, I, I originally, for the first eight years of my career, I was on the other side of the camera. I started out, I came out of college, and I worked for ABC Sports, and I worked as a, what they called a gopher. You go for this, you go for that. And I kind of became involved working on a different, totally different track, which was the production track. So I started as a gopher, then became a production assistant, and then I became an associate director, an associate producer. So I was headed towards a complete career of working behind the camera. And then I, in, in about eight years in, they had a reorganization at ABC Sports and they were trying to save some money and they were eliminating some jobs and I thought I was going to end up losing my job and I didn't really know what I could do for a living. And at the time I was writing and producing features for some of the sportscasters there, Howard Cosell and Jim McKay and Jack Whitaker and Jim Lampley. And I figured, well, you know, I could you know, the, the narrating has to be the easiest part of it. And that's the only thing I wasn't doing. So I figured, let me see if I can take some of these features that I did, that I wrote, that I produced, and put my voice on it instead of their voice, see how it turns out, and then send them around the country. And maybe I can get a job as a, you know, as a reporter. And so I did that. I made an audition reel and also got a sympathetic cameraman to shoot a couple of scenes of me in front of the camera. I sent the audition reel out, and I got a lot of nasty rejection notices, some of which I still have. And I got one positive response from a small, obscure cable operation in rural Connecticut. It was called ESPN. Of course, back then, ESPN was an obscure cable operation. I mean, it was really cable. And I spent 12 years there. And I was really, really lucky that when I got there, it was relatively obscure because it allowed me to kind of learn on the job and make a lot of mistakes in in obscurity, in an anonymity. I mean, I made I I did some things that if I was on ESPN today and made those same mistakes, I probably would never have continued on in in the career that I'm in. But um, while I was there, those 12 years, ESPN happened to just grow tremendously, and I was a beneficiary of that. And um, so I didn't really start out, you know, thinking that this is what I wanted to do. I thought I might want to be a writer and producer. So would you say it's all about timing in life? In this oh, it's, all about, it's all about timing in life, no matter what you do. Um, it's about timing, and it's about luck, and it's about hard work. So, I mean, if you kind of put the, all three of them together, you generally end up with, you know, what ends up working for people. When you first started working at ESPN, was that like your breakthrough into the industry? Yeah. Say? Well, at the time, you know, I was working at ABC Sports, and, you know, what people don't realize today is because there is no ABC Sports, but ABC Sports at that time was as big a presence in sports television as there was. It was as big as ESPN is today, maybe bigger. There was a show called Wide World of Sports, which was on every Saturday, and for an entire generation, it was the biggest show in sports television. 4.30 on Saturday, 4.30 to 6, and it had all sorts of sports on it, you know, Olympic sports, and, um, you know, not baseball, basketball, football, um, but, you know, all sorts of sports, and... um, that's where I kind of that's where I cut my teeth. That was a pretty big deal to work there, and I worked. That was my introduction to the Olympic Games. My first Olympics was in Lake Placid in 1980. I worked one, two, three, four Olympics for ABC Sports in a variety of capacities. Um, so I mean, it was a real to get that job 
was a really, really a gigantic breakthrough for me. I mean, I the only reason I think I was able to kind of get to where I am right now is because there was a door that was open to me that really nobody really wanted to walk through. I mean, there weren't thousands and thousands of young people who were beating down the doors of ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut back then wanting to be part of that operation. Would you say the Olympics is your favorite event to broadcast? I love the Olympics. I really, really do. Um, you know, and the, the Olympics are unique because there's a Super Bowl every year and there's a, you know, an NBA Finals and a Final Four and a Masters every year. The Olympics only happen once every four years. And if you think about that, just in terms of timing, you know, if you are an athlete and you're at your peak and something goes wrong, you wake up the morning of your competition with a cold, um, you're off that day, something happens, you slip and fall in competition, you got to wait another four years. And so... That competition has such extraordinary meaning. And for the most part, you know, the people who compete, it's really the biggest thing that they'll compete in. You know, I'm not a big fan of the NBA players playing in the Olympics. And I love watching, you know, the NHL players play in the Olympics. It just feels a little bit different. But I'm still not a fan of... My rule is that any sport where... Another title is a bigger deal than the Olympic Games would be. They shouldn't be competing. So if you ask, you know, for golf, for instance, you know, if you ask any player, Justin Rose won the first and only gold medal, not the first and only, the, you know, the gold medal three years ago at the Olympic Games in golf. There had been golf in the Olympics way back in the earlier part of, yeah. But... If you ask Justin Rose if he'd rather have an Olympic gold medal or a Masters green jacket, you know, he's he's too politically correct to give you an answer, but I'll give you the answer for him. There's, you know, there's no comparison. Um, and it's the same thing with, oh, I just say, who, you know, I, I challenge anybody to tell me who won the Olympic gold medal in, in men's tennis in Rio. I think Rafael Nadal won it. He might have. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's the point. It's just, you just, it just doesn't feel like the biggest event in their sports. So those sports, I don't think, belong in the Olympics. Yeah, like any basketball player would much rather have. An NBA title? Yeah, not an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, I mean, an Olympic gold it's medal cool. is special. Yeah. Right, it's, it's very cool and it's very special. But... Uh, you know, and I don't mean to denigrate the meaning of it, mm-hmm. to diminish the meaning of it, but it's just, it's not for those sports, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you say the Olympics has another vibe to it because it's countries uniting together? Like, what's it like seeing a third world country, like mm-hmm. some of the African countries come together? Yeah. I, listen, there's so many things about the Olympics that make it unusual. You know, we had a situation... Where was it? Wasn't in Rio? Was it in Rio? Yeah, it was in Rio, where we had, <coughs> excuse me, a team made up of just refugees. You know, the United, the International Olympic Committee had decided that since there was such a refugee crisis going on in the world, that a, a team of refugees should be represented in the Olympics. Their stories were amazing. You know what they had overcome just to be able to compete. So there are things like that. Then there are athletes who are permitted entrance into the Olympics by virtue of what they call Olympic wild cards, which are basically um, invitations to compete in the Olympics for people who don't meet the Olympic qualifying standard, but they want to invite them in because it might help generate interest in that sport in their country. So to see what some of these athletes are able to achieve and to see them compete. It's a very cool vibe. Um, you know, there there's the whole thing of how in the history of the Olympic Games, going right back to the beginning, you know, thousands of years ago, the ancient Olympics, there was something called an Olympic peace. And that what that was was during the Games, it was declared that all war, all war would cease so that the Olympians and fans 
could travel to ancient Olympia to watch the games. And I think that, you know, all these literally thousands of years later, almost 3,000 years later, it has a new and different meaning, which is that you see people getting along at the Olympics whose countries don't get along. You know, you see, I, I particularly remember an Israeli and a Palestinian oh, wow. tennis team, you know, um, two young women who, one from Israel, one from Palestine, or one, and they played together as a team. Um, you see things like that. So the Olympics are just a very unusual festival, you know. I mean, it's just, there's so many dimensions to it. And then there's the whole dimension of, you know, of athletic excellence. You know, the Simone Biles, the, you know, the Michael Phelps, the, you know, people who are doing things that are just unimaginable, you know. Yeah. There always seems to be that feel-good story during the Olympics. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there are a lot of my You know, it's funny. I think I get asked a lot you know, what's the most memorable thing I've ever seen in sports? It was an Olympic event. It was 1994, the Olympic Winter Olympics, Lillehammer, Norway, and Dan Jansen was an Olympic speed skater, and he finally won a gold medal. The story is way too long to tell here in your podcast, but, you know, for anybody who's listening and cares to look it up, it's Dan Jansen, J-A-N-S-E-N, and it was one of the more remarkable athletic stories I've ever seen, uh, at least the culmination of it. I think the greatest athletic achievement, single athletic achievement I've ever seen was at an Olympic Games. Eric Hyden won five gold medals in speed skating at the 1980 Olympics. You know, on the face of it, five gold medals might seem impressive but what you don't know is that he won every event in the speed skating competition everything from 500 meters up to 10,000 meters everything in between now for some kind of context that would be like somebody going to the olympics and winning the 100 meter dash and the marathon and everything in between people don't even compete in all those events this guy won every single event that was contested from 500 meters to 10,000 meters. And on the last one, the last gold medal at 10,000 meters, he had overslept that morning and had to hustle to get to the track. And he only had enough time to eat two pieces of bread for wow. a six-mile race. So anyway, there's all sorts of stories like that. That's why I love the games. That's an amazing story. Why do you think we don't talk about that more? We're always talking about like the bigger events, like basketball. Like I feel like an event like speed skating could just bring you a sport that you've never even heard of before. Well, look, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're not big fans of it here in the United States. We're fans once every four years. You go to the Netherlands, you know, Eric Haydn can't walk down the street in the Netherlands. Um, there are places in this world where badminton players are every bit as big as you know, LeBron James is here. It's just our particular uh, perspective on these things. Um, and, and in the end, though, it all gets down to two things, athletic excellence and backstory. And when you combine them, you end up at the Olympics with a lot of great stuff. Yeah, it seems like a really great experience just being able to be a part of the Olympics. It is. It always has been. Always yeah. has been. What would you say, compared to the Olympics, your experience working in golf, mm -hmm. like especially at Augusta, like great course like that, mm -hmm. how do they compare? Well, Augusta is an interesting, the Masters, a very, very interesting event because it's unique. Uh, the venue itself is unique. Uh, the title is very valued in the sport. You know, it's interesting, of all the four major championships, Augusta and the Masters, is the youngest. You know, the, the, what we know as the Open Championship, the British Open is the oldest. It's been going on since, you know, the mid-1800s. Then the U.S. Open first came to be in 1896. And the PGA Championship, I think, you know, I want to say in the early 20th century, the Masters didn't start happening until 1934. And so in that small amount of time, so what's that, 65, 75, 85 years, 
it has become one of the great sporting events anywhere. And I think that they've just got the right recipe there. You know, they insist on a certain amount of tradition. They're willing, most importantly, they're willing to leave money on the table with their broadcasting partners to have it their way, which is unheard of. So that they, for many, many years, and still, in this day and age when you can see anything on your TV or your computer screen or your phone or your watch, they only allow their broadcast partners to televise a certain number of hours because they believe that it it makes for great anticipation. And I think that they're kind of bending now because they kind of may realize that they're not necessarily serving the what you know what the audience's desires are. But that's just one example of the way they they the way they do business. And um, it's unique, you know? It really is. Yeah. Do you ever get like nervous? Did you when you first started working at Augusta? Did you ever get nervous around such great talent on the on the golf course? You know, maybe at first. I mean, I think that it would be natural. You know, when I was when I was young, my first real job in the media was I was a writer for the um, the local newspaper here in Westchester County. What's now the Journal News? It used to be a chain of eight different newspapers, and I actually started working there in high school. Um, you know, just doing high school sports for them because my mother, who was a teacher, there was a woman who volunteered as an assistant teacher for her. And that woman, her full-time job was the sports editor of the local newspaper. And they were just looking for a couple of people to come in and help out. Well, we started helping out and it grew and grew and grew and ended up leaving as full-time writers, and I think that that was my first exposure. I remember we covered, there used to be a PGA Tour event here in Westchester at Westchester Country Club. We covered that a couple of times. There were some big track meets in town, covered those. So that was my first exposure to big-time professional athletes, and I I think I was nervous. I think that would be natural. But, you know, you kind of get used to it. You really do. It's just like anything else. Did you always have a love for sports when you were a kid? I did. Yeah. I loved sports. I was never a stats guy, and I'm still not really terribly good with numbers. But I I enjoy watching the, the beauty of what athletes do. Um, you know, I always joke with my son Daniel, who is your friend, that... Um, that people can ooh and ah about a dunk, but the thing that brings the you know the greatest awe in a gym is a great pass, and it's it's like that. I mean, I like watching things like that in sports. I played lacrosse. Um, I was decent. I was all county honorable mention. I had thought I was going to play in college, but I wasn't good enough to play at the school that I went to. But I just love the you know I just love sports. Do you think anybody could do this job if you have the right people skills? Or do you really just have to have a niche for sports? Nah. I I think anybody could do it. I really do. But I think, you know, I have another son who, as we record this today, is his first day on the air as the weekend sports anchor at the Fox affiliate in Fargo, North Dakota. And he's wanted to do this for as long as I can remember. And I always told him, I said, it's about... Two things primarily. It's about being organized and being prepared. And I think that, you know, I think some people are better suited for certain things. You know, I look around the industry and I see people like Mike Tirico, who's just brilliantly talented. Um, You know, and there are lots of people like that. You know, not lots of people. There are a number of people like that. But just like there are great people great players in the NBA. Not everybody's LeBron James, but, you know, the rosters of all those teams are filled. And I think that, you know, if if the first thing is a true interest in your subject matter, and if you love sports, you know, why not get involved and talk about it? Yeah. Who would you say, like, your your idol was when you loved Hmm. sports as a child? Was there someone you looked up to, or was it more when you went into the industry and then there was someone you looked up to? You mean as as a participant? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I think that my the person that I most admired was Pete Maravich. Um, 
And for those who don't know, Pete Maravich was one of the greatest college, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He played at LSU, and he scored. He was the craziest ball handler you've ever seen. He scored at will. Uh, he was a lot of fun to watch. And um, there's a lot of videos of him on the internet now. You can go back and look. But um, he unfortunately died of a heart attack, I believe, in his early 50s. He was really an extraordinary player. And he was, the, he was my favorite athlete to watch way back when. As a matter of fact, these days, as an adult, I like to play golf. And I have my golf balls are printed with number 23 because that was his number. So always my favorite number. Oh, wow. So you say, Pete, do you still think about Pete Maravich all the time about how he was like the guy who got you into this? Like for me, mm-hmm. when I, as an aspiring journalist and broadcaster, I think about people like Colin Coward and Mike Francesa as um, people I want to look up to. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that still? Well, that's a different discussion. You know, I was a fan of Pete Maravich and a lot of other people. Um, basketball was my favorite sport to watch. Uh, lacrosse was my favorite sport to play. But in terms of looking up to people in the industry, I looked up to people like Jim McKay and um, Dick Shap, who is, you know, people might not know who that is or what listening to this, is Jeremy Shap's father, who was one of the original great um, television sports journalists who had made the transition from print. And I actually worked with Dick for a number of years as his producer, and then Jeremy worked with me. He was my producer for a while before he went on the air. Um, And other people like, um, you know, there was a period of time when I was not yet in front of the camera, and I was working for ABC News as a producer. And I worked with a guy named Judd Rose, and he was brilliant as a writer, just a brilliant, brilliant writer and reporter. And I really looked up to him. And I think I modeled myself or wanted to model myself after people like that who were, who, I, it would be presumptuous to say that I did this, but I, I admired people who had an elegance um, with language and for whom writing was important. Those were people who I looked up to. And Jack Whitaker, you know, like I said, Jim McKay. I worked with Howard Cosell for, uh, for about a year on his show, wrote and produced for him. So those were the people who I looked up to. I was not the guy who wanted to be Marv Albert. You know, I had other desires. You know, as I said, I, I was a story guy. And so these were people who told stories, and I always liked that. Do you think you could um, describe like how much preparation it takes to do your job like on a regular basis as a broadcaster? Well, it depends. You know, I do a number of things. I do, uh, like for instance, tomorrow I'm going to be in our studios at NBC Sports and I'll be on the air between all the sporting events doing highlights of what else is going on and that's just live television. But I'll have to acquaint myself with whatever... You know, the schedule of the day is tomorrow, aside from football, and know what games are on, know in the biggest games, you know, who the most important players are so that when somebody runs in 20 seconds before the red light goes on and hands me a script that, uh, you know, I know who these people are and I have some context. So it's all preparation is kind of a constant thing. You have to kind of keep up to date with these things. Um, when it comes to writing features that I do a lot, I mean, it's it's just a question of, you know, the work of the day. So that means if you do an interview, you have to prepare by learning about who the person is so that when they say something, you know, you, you know to follow up instead of going on to the next thing that's written on your paper. Um, that's the most important part of interviewing, I think, which is listening. So um, it's hard to, to quantify it, Jack, and talk about, you know, that it takes X number of minutes or hours to get ready for something because um, I do different things and there are different tasks that necessitate, you know, different types of preparation. 
would you say that you prefer broadcasting on air or or the journalism aspect of it? Um, I like all of it. I really do. I mean, there's an energy to being live on the air. And, you know, I particularly love covering college football because I think it's really one of the few sports that hasn't gotten too screwed up yet. Um, I think that um, every Saturday really, really, really matters. Unlike, you know, college basketball, which I adored. I went to the University of Maryland and when I got there, you know, I came from New York, and college basketball isn't really as big a deal here. But in Maryland, it was gigantic, and so I kind of became indoctrinated quickly. And it was a different game back then where, you know, every game really, really did matter. And so um, now there are just so many games, and, you know, ultimately, I mean, Maryland plays in the Big Ten now, and, you know, you'd think that if they do reasonably well, I mean, this year they're a bit of an outlier because they're very, very good. They're ranked sixth as we speak, but, you know, there are years that they've had average years, but because they're in the Big Ten, I mean, they're going to make it into the into the field of 68, which is ridiculous. Um, so, but the, there's the live thing is fun. It's just fun. It's like what being a sports fan is all about. It's like you're sitting in your living room and, you know, some highlight rolls by and you get to you get to talk about it. Only instead of talking about it to somebody who's on the couch, you're talking about it to millions of people who are watching. Um, the other part of it I really enjoy because it's very – I enjoy writing and I enjoy storytelling. So that part of it is also very, very rewarding to me as well. Uh, a lot, every broadcaster has a certain style that connects with the audience. How did storytelling become your thing? Like, what what attracted you to that? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think, like I said before, I was never the one. I never wanted to be a play by play guy. Although I do play by play in golf, but I never wanted to be the guy who did play by play. I was just drawn to those stories. I mean, nowadays there's a phrase, and you've probably heard it, when we'll say, let's get up close and personal with somebody. That phrase comes from ABC Sports back in the day. And what they were, were it wasn't it wasn't a verb or, you know, it didn't describe an action, getting up close and personal. It was a noun. An up close and personal was a profile. It was a story that was aired during the Olympic Games. And I became a big fan of those things and um, the people who told them. And I think I just kind of gravitated towards it. Um, and I don't really know why. I just, uh, it, that's what sports is to me. You know, it's good stories. Yeah, I, like that. I feel like stories is what makes sports sports. Because anyone, to be honest, can learn how to shoot a basketball or hit a golf ball far. Mm-hmm. But it's what takes them, um, what it the grind that they put through is really what's important, in my opinion. That's the thing I like about hearing, especially underprivileged kids making it to the league and stuff, because mm-hmm. I think that's uh, more impressive than you just learning how to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, would you agree with me on that one? Stories, stories are great. You know, I mean, they're what, you know, the the way that this all came about in the first place was the the man who started and then ran ABC Sports and elevated it to. Uh, the station of greatness that it occupied for a long time in this country was a man named Rune Arledge. And Rune, who I had the good fortune of working for for a very small window of his career, um, he came up with the idea of these up-close-and-personals, these stories. And the whole idea behind them was that if you gave people a reason to root, they would have much more interest. Instead of just a baseball game, if you showed them a story about a about who a p- person was, where they came from, you know their struggles in life, you know that you would become invested in them. And I was one of those guys who became invested, and in not only in the athletes, but I was fascinated by the vehicle itself, by the the stories. And I do think that. You know, I'm not the I'm not the person who can sit down, for the most part, you know, on a Saturday night at 11:30 and and watch two teams that I've never heard of play basketball or what you know. But if I know something about them and I have a reason, 
then maybe I will watch. I think that's the same way with a lot of other people. Yeah. It always makes it more interesting when you can um, know the backstory behind them. Not mm. just you're watching a blank player, just mm. a name. You know what it's, what it's about. Yeah, and that was the whole idea behind Up Close and Personals was that give people a reason to root, and they will. Mm-hmm. I want to transition to a different uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you've been described as Maryland's broadcaster, or your, your love for your alma mater. Can you mm-hmm. talk about your time there and the impact they've had on your career? Oh, I love the Terps. Up on the wall there, I was there for the 2002 when Maryland beat Indiana in the NCAA championship in Atlanta. Um, you know, listen, anybody who's listening to this who has gone to college, I'm guessing that they probably had a similar experience to the one that I had, which was they loved it. I mean, the fact that, you know, college blew by in four years, it had such an impact on my life. And it's so great to be a part of something. You know, I have an identity for the rest of my life that I'm very, very proud of. And when I see the great things that happen at the University of Maryland, I'm I'm very, very proud. And, you know, the football team is really, really struggling this year. And um, in the past couple of years, they've, you know, there's been some tragedy there. Uh, one of the athletes died. There's been some upheaval in the program. And they're trying to figure it out. And um, that hurts, you know. I mean, that uh, it's obviously a tragic thing for that poor f- person's family, but also for the, the greater Maryland community, you know, the feeling of um, sadness. And, you know, you want to be so proud of something, and it's, uh, it's, just, it's just a terrible situation. Um, but I think college is, and I tell my kids this, I said, you know, make the most of it because it's going to be over before you know it. And that's the sad thing. The great thing is, is that you'll have a community for the rest of your life. You know, you can, uh, you know, it's kind of a brotherhood or a sisterhood, you know. And it's a really great thing if I'm in some other city and I'm walking down the street and I see somebody wearing a Maryland shirt and I'll say something. I, I always get the same response. You know, a big smile, a thumbs up, something like that. We're connected. And there's a lot to be proud of at Maryland. I mean, it's a great, great academic institution. Um, they've had tremendous athletic success. We won the NCAA lacrosse championship two years ago. Um, we won the NCAA soccer championship, men's soccer championship last year. They uh, are on the forefront of a number of academic pursuits. Um, when I go there, because I have a son who's now a sophomore there, when I go there, it just does my heart good to walk around the campus and see all the great things that are going on. And I'm sure that my experience is by no means unique. As I say, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there listening who feel the same way about their alma maters. If you had the choice to win an Emmy Award or Maryland win the championship this year, what would you choose? Oh, Maryland the championship. You know, I mean... Maryland, the championship. Yeah. Let's just say that um, I've been fortunate in my professional career. Uh, Maryland's only got that one. You talking about basketball? Yeah, basketball. Great. Look, they look great this year. They really do look yeah. good this year. But they're, you know, we could turn this all, this whole this whole podcast into a scouting report for Maryland basketball. But they're. Uh, I love watching them. I love cheering for them. It's great to be a part of something, and it's great to be a part of something that's very successful, too. I mean, it's really... And plus, I'm really a big fan of, of the coach. I think Mark Turgeon does things the right way. Um, it's big time, too. It's it's fun. Yeah. You would say your time spent there really helped you? Oh, yeah. In career as a whole? Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I went there, and I did major in media but in retrospect I would not advise anybody to do that in college I would I think that people should go to college and they should get a liberal arts degree and I'm sure there's somebody out there you know who's listening to this and probably just had a stroke just thinking oh my god how can you do that you're not you're so unprepared for the job market the fact of the matter is there are plenty of opportunities no matter where you go to school to participate in any kind of 
professional um, program or many professional programs that might give you might prepare you to enter the industry. You know, for instance, when I was at school at Maryland, I was on the college radio station. I did play by I did I was the let's see, I was the color commentator on the lacrosse team and I was a DJ in the music department. I had a music show and also did some sports reporting there. That had nothing to do with the curriculum that I studied during the day. And, and it was something like that that actually got me uh, in some way prepared, taught me about the industry. And I took broadcast courses. But the thing is, and I think that this is something that it, that's often missed, you're not going to come out of a program. Let's just take the program, which I think most people acknowledge is the best broadcast or media training program in the in in colleges today it's uh, Syracuse okay the Newhouse school nobody's coming out of the Newhouse school and getting a job based upon what they learned in the classroom all the kids who come out of there and they're you know the list is endless from Bob Costas to Mike Tirico to Ian Eagle and Ian Eagle's son now but my guess is is that all of them basically got their training, not in the classroom, but out of the classroom, you know, as part of the college radio station, um, internships at local television stations and radio stations. I think that the best, you're not going to show up on the doorstep of ESPN or NBC and present them your credentials, you know, from college saying, you know, I studied radio, television, and film at Syracuse, and I was an A student, and, you know, I was magna cum laude, and, you know, I, I got an A in television directing. You know, if they hire you, what they're probably going to say is, okay, that's good. Uh, you need to make sure that the coffee pot is always full, and make sure that this announcer gets a ride from his hotel here. Don't say a word. Listen and watch and learn because the fact of the matter is most of what is being taught in colleges today in terms of broadcast curriculum is the type of thing that might be a couple of years behind the industry so i think the best thing that you can do for yourself is to go and learn how to write you know read some things that will give you some perspective and some context for what's going on in the world you know, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to have an interview with somebody. Well, if you go and you have an interview with somebody, what are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about how, again, my directing 401 class, we had one of the great cameras. I'll tell you a quick story. I, for some reason, at Maryland, ended up having to take an art history class my freshman year, and I found out I really, really liked it. And so I took another art history class. And so I took a couple art history classes, and I, it was just something that I ended up liking, and I would have never thought I would have been the type of person who would have liked that. Well, fast forward a couple of years later, I'm in a job interview at Rockefeller Center at NBC in New York as a 22-year-old, and I walk into a, a guy's office, and I'm nervous as can be, and hanging in back of his desk is a piece of art that I had studied in my art history course. We had something to talk about. And I could talk intelligently about it. The, the world out there isn't only about what happens on basketball courts and on football fields and in locker rooms. You know, there's a lot going on in the world and you're going to, as an adult, you're just going to have to be part of a society that's going to expect that you participate and you want to be prepared. There's a lot going on out there that's interesting. And I think college is such a great time because it allows you the opportunity to just look around and be intellectually curious. And you'll never have the opportunity again that you have in college, which is just your job is to be curious. That's your job. Be curious and follow your curiosity. And you'll, before you know it, you'll learn all sorts of things that'll make you a totally different person. And so I think it's really, really important to not only, I mean, be a sports geek if you want to be. I kind of was. But 
you know, be an intelligent human being too. And there are so many opportunities to teach you painlessly um, in an interesting fashion things that, you know, that may pique your fancy, you know? Do you say going to a college with athletics such as Maryland was a major role? Or do you think you could have gone anywhere and uh, you ended up the same? Yeah, I think I probably could have gone anywhere. I mean, I was lucky. I mean, the way my story is that I went to Maryland. I had gotten a couple of letters from the lacrosse coach. They were the defending national champions, and I got a couple of letters from him. I mean, you know, you play basketball. I mean, can you yeah. just, you know, imagine if, yeah, Villanova wrote you. Villanova won it last year? Who won it last year? Oh, my God, I... Virginia won a last Virginia, year. you got a, you got, yeah, I should know that, shouldn't I? You got a couple, if you got a couple of recruiting letters from, you know, from uh, Tony Bennett, how'd that make you feel? You think you might pay attention? So I went to Maryland thinking I was going to p- play. I had a girlfriend who was a year older than me, and she was at American University, so there were a lot of reasons for me to want to go to a place like Maryland. I went, I had no business being on that lacrosse field. I, I was not good enough to play with them. I was cut almost immediately. And, um, but I was working at the college radio station and it wasn't part of my curriculum. It was just something that I wanted to do. And when I got cut, I ended up doing the color commentary on the lacrosse team. Well, the lacrosse team ended up in the NCAA championship again that year. Only the difference was this time it was on ABC's Wide World of Sports. It was network television. It was a very, very big deal. So I called up. ABC's Wide World of Sports, I still remember. Their phone number was 212-LT17777. And I found my way to the person who was producing it. And I told him, listen, I know you guys probably don't know anything about lacrosse. Let me come up there. I don't want any money. Just let me sit in the truck. Maybe I can help you out. And he finally said, yeah, we could we could use somebody like you. And that was the beginning of my career. I ended up doing that. That was my first event as a gopher. Remember I told you before that I was a gopher? It's my first event as a gopher. And then I realized that they did that at all the events they did. So I kind of hooked on and all throughout college I worked, you know, when I could as a gopher at these sporting events. And it was because I had been cut from the lacrosse team and found out that it was going to be on television that I was able to make this relationship with these people at ABC Sports. It could have happened somewhere else, but who knows? I mean, I, we're all a product of our experiences. Yeah. So it's really these like real-world real experiences during college that helped even more than stuff inside the classroom, you would say? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, listen, I'm, I am not here to tell you that what happens in the classroom isn't important, but I'm saying that it's all part of a big mosaic. You know, it's not only about what you do, you know, when class is in session. Um you know, what's the old basketball expression that how you do when the lights are on is basically a result of yeah, something like yeah. that, right? How, how you do when the gym is full is basically a result of how you do when there's no one there to watch you. You know, there's a big, you know, college is a big, big experience socially, academically, culturally. You know, you're going to change as a person in college. I certainly did. And your learning is not confined to what you find, you know, now on your computer screens. But back then when I was in school, you know, what we found between the covers of a book. If you could go to Maryland right now, would you change their whole uh, broadcasting program and the way they teach it? No, because right now they really, really, when I left, um, it has grown tremendously. Um, There is a department for sports broadcasting at Maryland. There's a whole school of sports broadcasting. And um, there is a very well, excuse me, a very well-respected journalism school there. And then the sport, there's the sports broadcasting, the, the um, Shirley Povich um, school of broadcasting uh, or department in the uh, night journalism school. And it's named after the great sports writer, Shirley Povich from the Washington Post. But it's what they've done there has been remarkable. They have, they I think that they have it, up until you know this is the last year, but it's being run by George Solomon, who for many years was the 
sports editor of the Washington Post, and he does a great job of creating all sorts of programs and curriculum uh, for uh, not only conventional media studies, but also the evolution of media studies. So they've done a great job at kind of keeping their finger on the pulse of where journalism is going and sports journalism is going. I think they're doing a great job. How do you think, like, the industry today has been affected by the rise of social media and how, like, journalists having to adapt to the way that social media has, like, taken over? Yeah, it's really, it's just, it's part of the deal, you know? I mean, and it's, um, listen, you're not going to unring the bell, so it's here to stay. I think there's a lot of it that I don't really like. Um, I hate the anonymity of it. I hate the fact that people can kind of sit in a dark room and say terrible things about people and not have to take any responsibility. I, they say things that they would never say to somebody's face. It's just disgusting. Um, on the other hand, there are great things about it, like the instantaneous nature of reporting. You know, you can find out things, you know, literally as quickly as it takes you to tweet it out. And I use it. I, you know, I'm on Twitter, and I, um, I use it to get a lot of information, and I also use it to share information. So I see the value of it. There are certain things about it I really don't like, um, but it's not going away, and you know, we better get used to it. Did you say that Twitter is the best social media for uh, journalism? A lot of people like Instagram. Yeah. I don't. I just don't have. I don't have time to be involved in Instagram and Twitter and all these different things. I mean, I, I've i never, ever, I may be the only human being alive who's never been on Facebook. Um, I just, I think it's a gigantic time suck. You know, I mean, Twitter takes enough time, but it's useful. Um, I can tell you this, I wish that Twitter was around when I wrote that book that I wrote because I think it would have helped me sell another few thousand copies. Um, but... I think that probably the two most prevalent ones are Twitter and Instagram um, professionally. And I, I have an Instagram account. I just don't really use it because, again, I just don't have the time. You know, I really don't have the time to be committed to doing that. Time doing that takes away from time doing other things, you know, watching your basketball team play. Because yeah. as, like, a young broadcaster, it's almost, like, unheard of probably that they don't have an Instagram or a Twitter. Like, it's almost a necessity nowadays. Yeah, well, that's my my kids have been trying to get me to to do Instagram, um, and yes, you're right, it is unheard of. You have to do that um, partially to promote your own brand, which is necessary, and partially to kind of get information. I mean, it's a great way to get information, you know. But I I know I'm an old man when it comes to this stuff, but it makes me crazy to be. You know, to be out and see people with their heads buried in their phones. I mean, I listen, I bury my head in my phone enough as it is, but it's just, I think it's something that's happened in society that's it's not good for us. I mean, I, I do think that there was a time, you know, and this is really going to sound old, so there was a time when if you wanted to take a girl out, you literally had to call her, you had to talk to her. And now it's all about just, you know, texting and Instagram, you know, and there's, and then all of a sudden you're put in a position where you actually have to face somebody and you don't know how to communicate with somebody. I think it's hurt us in, in some ways. Um, so I think we could do with a little bit less time spent with our noses buried in screens. Um, and then that's not to say that I'm one of those people who thinks that there's no use for it. I just think that we'd all benefit if we could just put down the screens a little bit. I know a lot of people in broadcasting and athletes in general don't actually run their social medias. Do you run yours? Oh, yeah. I don't want anybody else, you know, I don't want anybody else speaking for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's dangerous. Plus, I don't think I'm interesting enough to have somebody, you know, construct something that anybody care about. Um, and I try not to make my Twitter feed about um, personal things. I try and make it about professional things. Um, sometimes I can't help myself because I'm, you know, proud if it has to do with one of my kids or, you know, my family. But it's mostly observations about things um, and disseminating news. So, 
But I can't even imagine. I mean, who? I just think that's ridiculous, having somebody else do your Twitter feed. What's the point? Yeah. It's like somebody writing a press release for you. What is that? It's, I agree with you. It's like someone writing a book. Like, it's your word. Like, who can speak for you? Like, you, I look at it as like, if you're going to tell them what to write, why don't you just write it? Yeah. That's a pet peeve of mine because I've written one book that's published and another one I just finished that I'm about to try and get published. The second one's a novel and I'm in the midst of trying to write a third book with a, um, with a Hall of Fame athlete who I really can't talk about his name right now. But there right now are so many books out there where they say, you know, the book written by so-and-so. Well, they didn't write the book. You know, somebody wrote the book for them. And I just, I, it's like you said, I can't get over that. Having written a couple of books now, writing a book is a hard thing. It's a really, really hard thing. It's a very rewarding thing. And I just don't understand how somebody could possibly put their name on a book that they actually didn't write. Um, you know, so. Do you want to, can you um, like describe the experience? It was like writing your first book, Breaking, Breaking Your Slump. Was it a... Really, as you said, it was a rewarding experience, but was it, was it tough? Oh, yeah. But, you know something? I'm looking to see if I've got a copy of it in here. I don't. Um, it was very rewarding. Um, it was tough. It took about 10 months to write. And I didn't think, you know, that we laugh in my family. In the, in the book, I say, um, I call my sister. I have two sisters, both older than I am. And I called, I'm particularly close to one of them. And I called her and I said, hey, um, I just just decided I'm going to write a book. And there was silence on the other end of the line. She said, well, I think that mom and dad would have been really happy if they'd known you were just going to read a book. Um, so it was hard. And it was something that was kind of foreign to me. But it was really the most rewarding professional thing I've ever done. And uh, I had, it was a great experience, you know, talking to all those great golfers and President Bush did a chapter with me, 41, but uh, his son, 43, he and I developed a bit of a relationship. I was invited to the White House when he was in office to talk about his dad. That was a pretty thrilling experience. My wife and I went and had dinner at the White House um, to help send off the American Olympic team in 2008. That was all part of that relationship that I think I had with the president at the time. But Writing a book is just a really gigantic accomplishment, you know, um, or at least it was for me. And I think I, I think it kind of, in my own mind, it gave me a sense of validation uh, because, you know, I had my doubts about that I wasn't the smartest person and I may certainly not be the smartest person, but I figured... If I can do something like this, it made me feel really good about myself. And I was very proud of the work, too, and it did well. Um, I had to, the process was interesting. I basically would, um, I gathered a lot of information. I had to do a lot of reporting. So I'd go on the road and I'd do a lot of interviews and I'd do some interviews on the phone. And I would write pretty much the same time every night. I would, after everybody else went to sleep, I'd sit at the computer for a couple of hours and I would write. And it was really, really rewarding, you know, when you do something that you don't think you can do or you're not sure if you can do and you're actually able to do it. It's a very, very powerful thing. So it was a it was a great thing for me and I'm and I'm like I said, I'm very, very proud of it. Right now, your writing is considered some of the best in all of broadcast journalism. Did you have any niche for it? Like, were you great at English or history? Or was it just something that you worked so hard for? I was not a great student. And thank you. That's a very nice thing for you to say. Um, but I was not a great student. I had to work really, really hard at it. And I think that I came to this late. And what I mean by late is that when I was in high school, I was not a great student. And when I was in college... When I went in, I was not a terribly attentive student, but by the time I came out, I really enjoyed, excuse me, the learning. And I think that it was the whole love of storytelling that kind of 
took me down a path of sharpening those skills and learning those skills and caring about the language and caring about proper use of the language and caring about how to tell a story in a way that people want to consume it. You know, it's one thing to write something. It's another thing to write something that people want to read or they want to hear. And I worked hard on developing my own style, which I'd like to think is somewhat conversational. But uh, I don't know. It's just like a fingerprint. You know, it's just kind of who I am. It's just something that I like. I can't describe why I... I can't describe why I like chocolate chip ice cream, and I can't describe why I like to tell stories. You know, the joke that I always say is that when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble for telling stories. Now I get paid for it. That seems awesome, though, when you get to turn your passion into a job and be super successful. Because I feel like a lot of people nowadays, they're just focused on, like, the money aspect. And I feel like when you can take something that you, other people may not say you can do or it it's, may not seem as, like, big as just, like, being a billionaire – I think that's more rewarding than just like working for something else that you don't care about or something that your parents want to do. Mm-hmm. And I really like how you, it seemed like it was all self-motivated. It was nothing like your parents were saying, you have to be a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Grandpa did it. I did it. Mm-hmm. It was just like something you adapted to. Listen, my advice to you guys and to anybody who's listening who cares is that, and this is by no means original, find something that you really like to do and do it. You know, I mean... You'll earn a living, you know, and there's always going to be some way to earn a living where you can earn more money than whatever it is you're doing, unless your name is Bill Gates, you know, you're, there's going to be some other job you can have to earn more money. But, you know, you want to wake up every day and you want to kind of look forward to what you're doing. You want to be excited. I think that part of writing the book, that first book was that, and actually the second book that I wrote that's not published yet, it's a novel. I loved writing it. I just loved writing it. I looked forward to sitting down and writing. And I got, you know, it would carry me away. And you're, if you're lucky in life, you'll find something that carries you away or someone. Yeah. Do you see your family has been a big motivator for you? My family. So let's see. So my family that I have now has been, you know, my wife and kids. They're been, they've been great because they have facilitated all of this. I mean, they've accepted the fact that I've been away for, you know, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, you know, in my 22-year-old's lifetime, I guess I've been on the road for thousands of days. And there are a lot of things that I missed, and nobody ever gave me a hard time about it. And that was a great thing. And my wife had to do a lot of things without me uh, that weren't easy, and I'm grateful. As far as my parents, uh, they were great because they just wanted me to go and do whatever it is that I wanted to do. I never, ever heard them say, you want to be a sportscaster? What is that? You know, I mean, they were always very, very supportive. And, um, you know, they were not helicopter parents, as they say. And they cared deeply, but they gave me all the support that I needed, and um, it was very meaningful. Yeah. What's one thing you would tell a young broadcaster today? Like, what one, one piece of advice? Listen. You know, it's important to listen. And the same thing that I tell my son, who is, as I said before, today's his first day behind the anchor desk at KBRR in Fargo, North Dakota. Listen. Be organized and be prepared. And if you can do those things, you'll be in a really, really good position to succeed. It worked for me. Is that what you would tell your younger self to listen and be prepared? Or would you say that you were pretty good at that and it was other stuff you wanted to improve on? <laughs> My younger self. I was a knucklehead. Some people still think I am. Um, I was not a great student, like I told you. I think I, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I might tell my younger self to pay a little bit more attention to that. Although I think by the time I got midway through college, I got it and really embraced the whole idea of what you were doing in a classroom, you know. But I was lucky because I also don't believe that 18 years old is the time for 
you know, boys or young men to be going to college because, you know, most young kids are kids at that point. And really, I don't think that they are ready to devote themselves for the most part to the opportunities that sit in front of them. So there's generally a year or two lag time before they kind of, the light bulb goes on over their head and they say, oh, wait, I get it. But my younger self, you know what? I don't know what I'd tell my younger self. I'm, I'm really fortunate that things worked out despite myself. So I don't know. I'll give you my mother's phone number. You can call her and ask her. <laughs> um, this is an off-topic question, but I still have to know. Why is one of your Emmy Awards at Bentley's? Ah. Um, well, so when I was in college at the University of Maryland, my senior year, um, a restaurant opened right in the heart of downtown there in College Park called R.J. Bentley's Filling Station. And I was one of the original employees and became very, very friendly with the man who owned it and still owns it all these years later. And it's now it's still the biggest kind of hot spot on campus. They talk about it all the time when, you know, on ESPN or the Big Ten Network when they're talking about games in College Park and they're, you know, it's a big party going on down at Bentley's. Anyway, it was always a place that had a focus on Maryland athletics. And so as a result, there are all sorts of jerseys hanging on the wall of great Maryland athletes, either who worked there or who went there. And after I graduated, I would frequently go back when I was swinging through Washington. And one day I was in there and I said to the man who owns the place, John Brown, I said to him, I said, John, I said, you know, I can't bring you Jersey. I, you know, I didn't play any team here. What am I going to bring you? He says, why don't you bring me one of those Emmys? And so I kind of filed it away. And the next time I got there, I showed up and I brought him an Emmy. And they put it over the cash register. And it's been there for uh, 15 years, 20 years now. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know what it is, but... um, it's. Uh, I think it's a perfect place for it to be, if you ask me. I spent a lot of good times at Bentley's, and I'm proud to be represented in that fashion there. Yeah. It's a really great story. Yeah. Uh, another thing about College Park, would you say that it's changed at all dramatically, like the atmosphere of Maryland's athletics? My uncle played football at Maryland's, and uh, he was a nose tackle. Mm-hmm. He had a chance to play in the NFL, but blew out his back. Would you, do you think Maryland has changed from like the amount of support they give? Maryland has always been, I mean, as far as I know, you know, athletics has always been a big deal there um, and a high priority. Maryland won a national football championship in the 50s. Um, You know, we talked about, you know, there there have been three lacrosse championships, or I think three. The women's lacrosse team is just is the most dominant program in the sport. Soccer team, you know, so... It's always been a big deal there culturally, and I just think that proportionally it's grown, yeah. you know, over the last, um, you know, over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. It just keeps on growing. Yeah. Um, what was the thrill of winning your first Emmy, hmm. and now you've won 12 more since then? Did it, did it still change any time? Was it just like, that was the first time, well, I accomplished the biggest goal on TV, now it's just like, oh, it keeps coming and coming? Well... The first Emmy. Let's see. What was thrilling about that was that um, that was shared with Jim McKay, and I had to share the stage with him. And so it made me very, very nervous. And, you know, I've been fortunate to win a number of those statues, but the, but the subset of that number that really means more to me is the ones that were individual Emmys. And I have one for writing, um, for reporting, for journalism, for individual achievement. So those are the ones that I earned by myself that are really very meaningful. There's a subjective nature to the judging of it, which makes it um, impossible to really... Listen, I've lost more of those things than I've won. I've been nominated a number of times. The most important Emmy nomination I ever had, I lost. Um, I was part of a show where... um, We did a report on a guy who was falsely imprisoned in Attica, and our reporting helped to get him out of prison. 
and that was nominated for an Emmy, and it lost. But that's okay, because the real win was that he's not in prison anymore. So um, it's kind of superficial stuff. It's better to win than not to win, but it's a dangerous thing to kind of basically form your entire self-image based on something like that. Like you shouldn't get caught up in the awards. There's more to the story. There is, and the other thing is it's just like playing sports. Never get too high, never get too low. Would you, what's the feeling like when you're broadcasting or your job impacts other people? Um, that's meaningful. You know, the whole story about the fellow who was in prison, Valentino Dixon, 27 years he was in prison, falsely imprisoned. Um, and the fact that some of what we did helped get him out is the greatest single achievement the the best work that I've ever been a part of, and that's very very meaningful. So it's it's meaningful. It's it's nice when you entertain people and they remember it, you know, and they appreciate it. It's a good thing. One thing I feel like that story is it's the work that's never seen is the work that's the most important. Like your preparation is really what makes you you, mm-hmm. and that story because no one's talking about that on TV every day. But like if you think about it, you just saved someone's life, mm-hmm. and like I feel like people get caught up in just like. Well, he didn't win an award for it, so it's just like, what does it mean? And I feel like that you've done such a great job of like pushing through that type of stuff. And I think that one of the, I'm following your career, it's been you've always just come over adversity. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's something that is is um, adapted, or do you always have that ability? You well, you better in this industry be relentless because it'll knock you down. So it's just like sports; you just gotta work hard. And appreciate your, you know, appreciate the victories that you think are victories and not what other people think are victories. You know, do your job, work hard, be organized and prepared, listen, and do good work. You know, and it's, um, you can't really be outwardly focused. You have to kind of be inwardly focused. But I think that's really like any place, you know. You got to, that's a good prescription for life. Yeah. Yeah, it's really meaningful. A lot of stuff you said really helps people out there just really learn about the industry as a whole, and I think it's really meaningful. Good. Thank you. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, last question. Yes. Uh, what is it like having golfers such as Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods say such wonderful stuff about you? They've changed the whole sport. Huh. Well, Jack and I are very friendly, and his wife, Barbara, and their whole family. I've been very fortunate in my life to get to know them. Um. Tiger doesn't say such wonderful things about me, <laughs> not anymore. But um, but on on the other side of it, he doesn't say terrible things about me anymore either. We used to be very friendly, but um, listen, it's just part of the it's part of the territory. You know, it just it just so happens that these are the people who are part of my work, and um, they're just like anybody else. And that's something that you guys will learn. And they're interesting. Uh, to talk to and to listen to. Um, and, you know, I look back on life and I've just met some very, very interesting people and I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah. Well, we don't thank you so much for coming on and taking the time out of this. Sure. Um, be sure to check you out tomorrow on NBC Sports uh, for football holiday coverage. Yeah, it was a great, great experience. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank Jack. you, again. Jack, Christian, good to be with you guys. Thank you. CP3 signing off.